I'll invite you to take your Bibles for our message this evening and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Such a privilege to pray unto the Lord, to lift up our request to Him. Could you imagine what life would be like without prayer? Could you imagine what life would be like if we didn't have a means by which to petition God for our needs and to to bring things before the throne. What a different life it would be. Praise God for for that capacity that He has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ, to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're looking at just two verses this evening. Verses 12 and 13. Title of the message, Loving the Laborers. Loving the Laborers. The church at Thessalonica was still young in its faith and in its experience. For a small while, they had enjoyed the teachings of Paul and Silas and Timotheus as they eagerly learned the doctrines of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, as we know, Paul and his companions needed to leave quickly and somewhat prematurely from what they perhaps would have wanted. When they did so, there's little doubt that they appointed elders for the church Men who would carry on the teaching and the organization of the local body of Christ according to the expectations of God. We can infer quite uh, easily just based upon the structure of the New Testament and how uh, Acts demonstrates the, the, the bringing together of churches and the establishment and the organization of churches. And then as we look through the epistles and understand the teachings, we, we can infer quite confidently that there would have been elders appointed in this church. Now, as you think about that, imagine the challenge of that task. Imagine the challenge of attempting to teach and to lead a church, first off, in Paul's shadow. Imagine the challenge of trying to comfort and guide a church through a time of deep persecution and even martyrdom among the brethren with little to no personal experience as a leader, spiritual leader of men. Imagine the challenges of being in a city that was not just apathetic to the message of the gospel. You know, you and I live in a city here in Buffalo or or in the area surrounding. We live in an area that is very religious. People don't want to hear the gospel because they think everybody thinks they're okay. Now, that's one challenge, but imagine the challenge as a young group of believers and a young group of elders that was not just apathetic to the gospel, but literally hostile to the gospel. And imagine these challenges being placed on the shoulders of men who have probably not long been followers of Christ themselves. If you can imagine all of that, you might have an idea, at least in part, of the situation in Thessalonica. It was probably, at least in part, this reason that Paul had been so concerned for the church when he was forced to leave it, that the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians reflect the, the deep degree of concern that Paul felt for these believers as he had to leave and go to Berea and then to Athens and then to Corinth where he was likely writing. 
And it was also, at least in part, probably for this reason that Paul was so relieved when Timothy came back with a letter or with a favorable report of their love, of their obedience, and of their faithfulness to the Word of God. And so as Paul continues to teach through various principles that the church needed to be reminded of, his thoughts turned towards those elders who had been appointed to lead their local body of Christians. Now, we spoke not too long ago in a Tuesday evening service, but it bears repeating about elders, bishops, and pastors. There are two offices which are taught and demonstrated specifically in scriptures. There is the elder, which is also called the pastor or the bishop. And then there is the deacon. Those are the only two offices that the scriptures describe, define, and demonstrate. The elder pastor bishop and the deacon. And first, we need to understand, those of us here need to understand this evening, that the offices of elder, pastor, and bishop are in Scripture speaking of the same office, the same position. And we know this specifically because of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And notice what it says with me. In 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, the Scriptures say, The elders which are among you I exhort, this is Peter writing, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And this is what he tells them. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Here we see the Apostle Peter commanding, I'm sorry, commanding, exhorting the elders of various local churches scattered abroad, unto certain actions. Uh, my, my notes are typed here. Um, one of my daughters, I came into my office this past week. I, I know this is going to distract you. It's distracting me, so it might as well distract you too. Came into my office and I found my daughter playing with a keyboard. And I thought I had undone all of the things in my notes and, and, um, <laughs> and I sure didn't. I, I'm looking now at, my, at the inclusions that my daughter felt were necessary in my notes. So forgive me for the laughing. Let's try again here. Uh, Here we see the Apostle Peter commanding, exhorting the elders of various local churches scattered abroad unto certain actions. Now, one of these actions that he was telling these elders to do was to feed the flock. Feed the flock. The word feed here in the Greek is the word poimen, which is literally the word shepherd. And it is the word that we call Pastor. The word pastor literally means a shepherd. And so the elder is being exhorted to pastor the flock, shepherd the flock, feed the flock. Now, the other action that, the, that Paul exhorts the elders unto here in 1 Peter chapter 5 is oversight. Oversight of the flock. The word oversight in this passage is the word from which we get our word bishop. It's the word bishop, which means overseer. A bishop is an overseer. So we see that the terms elder, 
pastor and bishop in 1 Peter 5 are used to speak of the same office. Maybe different functions of that office, but definitely the same office. The elder was the one responsible to pastor the flock. The elder was the one responsible to bishop or oversee the flock. Now, let's be clear here. Though these terms may represent the same office, it doesn't mean they all have to be done by the same guy. That means that the elder bishop pastor, every single one of them, regardless of their function, needs to meet the qualifications in Scripture of the elder bishop pastor. But if you have one who's, say, the, a better flock feeder and another who might be a better overseer, well, you have two elders. That's not a bad thing. In fact, a, a plurality of elders is, is, is a good thing in many, many respects. It's very rare for us to see in Scripture a circumstance where um, you see a church with, with it being spoken of with just one elder. Um, small churches might be necessary. As our church grows, Lord willing, we'll, find, we'll have a few more pastors on our staff. So, some people that can perhaps fill in some gaps that I don't do so well. Uh, right now, I have to be the pastor and the bishop and uh, the elder and all of those sorts of things. But Lord willing, one day... We'll have somebody who can take a few of those responsibilities off my plate. But if we do, rest assured, he will meet the qualifications in the scripture as to the elder bishop pastor, because they are indeed all one office. The scriptures are not very specific as a whole on church structure, probably because churches are different. As I mentioned, in our church right now, a plurality of elders, as far as those who are meeting the qualifications of the bishop in the scriptures, that would be a bit of overkill. We don't have enough even qualified men to meet the requirements. So you have one elder. However, though that is perhaps not ideal, it is not wrong biblically, as the scriptures are not particularly defined particularly specific in this regard. But what we do need to see here is that the bishop, the elder, the pastor, they are considered one office, one function, and they have one set of qualifications. Pastor, what are those qualifications? Well, to know those qualifications, you go to 1 Timothy 3. And Paul begins 1 Timothy 3 by saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires good work. Well, so this is the office of the bishop. Well, what about the pastor and the elder? Well, we just saw in 1 Peter 5 that they're the same office. So the pastor, the elder, the bishop, whatever you want to call him, these are his qualifications, and they are quite specific. He should be blameless. Good testimony. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, not a striker, not greedy of money, filthy lucre is what it says specifically, not greedy of money, patient, not a fighter, not covetous, one who rules his own house, that's his wife and his children well, not a new believer, that would be... Um, one who is so young in the faith that they could easily be discouraged by Satan, and a good testimony of those who are without, a good testimony of the world around him. Such is God's expectation for men in this most essential 
role and function in the body of Christ. If a man does not meet these qualifications or if at some point throughout his ministry he fails at these qualifications, then he ought not be one who is put up as a leader in the church, an elder, a pastor, a bishop. But First Timothy speaks of one other office as well in the local church and only one more. It is for this reason that we at Legacy Baptist Church do indeed only recognize two offices, the pastor, elder, bishop, and the deacon. That is indeed the second qualification that, Timothy, that Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The deacon in the New Testament is first seen in Acts 6 when the pressure of the church of Jerusalem was becoming too much for the leaders of the church, the apostles, those who were the elders in the church. The, they were so busy. The apostles had gotten so busy helping everybody, so busy serving everybody that they were running out of time to study the Word of God and to devote themselves to prayer. They were running out of time to prepare themselves to teach properly. And this was a big problem because teaching is foundational to the church. Teaching is essential to the church. And this is the primary responsibility of the elder, pastor, bishop. That was one of the qualifications, right? If he's not apt to teach, if he does not have the capacity to teach men, then he should not ever become an elder, pastor, bishop. So the deacon, however, was not given this qualification. They were men that were ordained by, appointed by the apostles specifically to remove the responsibilities of, of some of the service and, and the helping of other people from the day-to-day ministry of the bishop, elder, pastor, so that they could devote themselves to teaching and to prayer. So they would do the day-in, day-out affairs of the ministry. They would go and meet the needs of the people in the church. They would minister to the widows and to the orphans. And they would do some of those tasks in order that the elders could pray and teach. And the qualifications of the deacon, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, are these. Grave, serious. Not double-tongued. Not saying one thing and meaning another, saying one thing to one person, saying a different thing to someone else. Not given to wine. Not greedy of money. Honest in his faith. Blameless of, in testimony. Uh, the, a wife who is grave. A wife who is kind. A wife who is sober. A wife who is faithful. Only one wife. And ruling his wife and children well. These are the qualifications of a deacon. So you can see some of the things that are, are there that were there as well of the bishop and then a few things that were not there, a few things that, that were not qualifications for the deacon as the deacon is indeed a lesser standard because it is a lesser position of responsibility. As I mentioned, these are the only two offices that the Bible clearly presents. The Bible does not present the idea of an elder board or a deacon board as being a group of laymen who direct the business end of the church. Now, in Baptist churches, quite often, the deacons become almost a board of directors. 
where they become responsible for leading the business of the church. In other churches, the elders take that responsibility. There's pastors and then there's elders. And the elders aren't held to the standard of the pastor. The elders are more or less a, a directing board. These are different ways that the church has organized itself. Different ways that the church has sought to deal with the Western world problem of the fact that churches are businesses as much as they are anything else. Uh, we have to submit ourselves to laws if we're going to own buildings and we're going to own vehicles and we're going to own things and operate and, and have money coming in and going out. There's many laws that we need to, to be submitted to. So these things, elder boards, deacon boards, they're not bad things. But what they have done is muddy the water between the office of deacon and elder and simply a position that we would call the deacon board or the elder board. Because quite regularly, they aren't held to the standards of 1 Timothy chapter 3. So when we look at churches and we see how they're operating, we see how they're structured, we need to understand that the elder bishop pastor, one office, and deacon, another office, are offices ordained by God, established in the church, demonstrated in the church with particular qualifications unto spiritual ministry. On the contrary, when you have businessmen doing business things, that's fine, but we probably ought to have some line of demarcation between the two. And that's what we see. Two offices. One being the elder pastor bishop. The other being the deacon. Now it's important to understand also that the role of the elder in the church is not just a meaningless title for the sake of organization. The man who is given the office of the pastor by the church is ordained unto leadership in that church. Definite God-ordained authority. And to understand this, we revisit 1 Peter chapter 5 for just a few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 5, we already talked about verses 1 through 3. Peter begins by exhorting the elders of various churches unto leadership. We'll read it again. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. In other words, Peter says, as a pastor, you are a position of authority, but you are to lead by example, not by constraint. Paul tells them that they need to be careful to lovingly shepherd the people. They need to be careful to have proper oversight over the affairs of the church, spiritual and otherwise. But then he warns them not to be too heavy-handed or greedy in their leadership. They're not to become the dictator pastor, the man that rules with an iron fist, the one who just surrounds himself by yes-men so that they can get what they want and only what they want. And the church uh, lives or dies, rises and falls based upon His Word. They're not to demand respect and obedience like some overlord 
where somebody doesn't respect him properly, then, then you get in his face and you basically run him out of the church. Rather, we are, as pastors, I am, and all pastors are intended to lead by example and ask the congregation to follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not, nor is any pastor intended to be a taskmaster. You don't, pastor doesn't walk behind the congregation with a cattle prod. The pastor walks in front of the congregation with the lantern of God's Word. The pastor will be the first one to take a step and asking everyone else that willingly follows to take the same steps. It's like my girls, when it's snowy outside, I'll step and I'll step and they'll jump in my steps and my footprints. Just as dad is leading his daughters and he's going to lead them where it's safe and he's going to lead them where it's right and he's going to lead them uh, generally toward the car <laughs> if it's cold outside. Um, in the same way, the pastor is intended to be in front of the church pursuing Christ and encouraging the rest of the church to follow him in that pursuit. The pastor is a servant leader who asks God's people to follow him tells them what the Bible says, and then shows them what it means to live out what the Bible says in both his life and in his family. That is the pastor. And while it is a servant leadership position, 1 Peter 5 also makes it clear that there is authority behind that position. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we read this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they um, that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Here the writer of Hebrews exhorts the church of God to submit itself to the leadership of those who have been appointed as their pastors, as their spiritual leaders. And comparing that with what we have already read in 1 Peter, we know that this does not imply that when the pastor says jump, you say how high. The idea is that as the pastor seeks to lead the church collectively and you as individuals into organization and into godliness, that you would not resist his efforts. The writer says here that they watch for your souls as one that must give an account. And, and he says, submit to them so that they can do that with joy and not with grief. You know, it's very difficult for a pastor to experience great opposition when he's attempting to lead his people into, unto the Lord. He's still going to do it. He's still going to watch for your souls. He's still going to pray for you. But those, that prayer might be a little more the kind on his knees with tears instead of the kind with joy because there's such deep opposition to what he's trying to do in the body of Christ. The idea is that as the pastor seeks to lead you, you would not resist. When you submit yourself to the authority of Legacy Baptist Church through membership, I become accountable in part for your souls. Even as you just attend this church, 
to whatever degree you submit yourself to my teaching, I become accountable for a portion, as it were, of your soul, your spiritual health. And if you think that that is no big deal, try being a pastor. That is a big, big deal that I am accountable for your spiritual well-being. It's the same way that a father is, is accountable to his children for, their, for his children's well-being, for their spiritual well-being, for their physical well-being, except I'm accountable for my sheep. I am a shepherd accountable for my sheep. I am a pastor accountable to God for the soul's of the people that submit themselves to my teaching. And just like any leader, how can a pastor lead you properly into godliness if you are busy resisting him all the time? Pastors have God-ordained authority, just like a father has God-ordained authority, just like government has God-ordained authority, just like employees have God-ordained authority. And just like any other God-ordained authority, it is God's will that you would submit yourself to your pastor's leadership over you. In the case of the church, however, God's will is far more than simple submission. Look with me at what 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word. And doctrine. It's not just about you submitting yourself to the leadership of pastor, elder, bishops. The scriptures tell us that those elders who, in whatever scope of responsibility and authority they have been given, do a good job, rule well, show themselves as proper reflections of the qualifications of the elder and the responsibilities of the elder. They are worthy at the hand of the people who, whom they serve of double honor. Paul goes out of his way to emphasize that those elders in particular who are responsible for teaching the truth of Scripture and handle that responsibility with faithfulness and accuracy are particularly worthy of this double honor. He says, let the elders that rule well have double honor. And then he says, and especially those who are busy about laboring in word and in doctrine. They are worthy of honor. And it is within this context. As, excuse me, within this context, this verse comes immediately after Paul's exhortation to meet the needs of widows. So he, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, meet the needs of widows that are widows indeed, that don't have any family to support them, that are in great need of help. Meet the needs of those widows. And then, by the way, the elders that rule well, they're worthy of some honor as well. They're worthy of some support as well. And so we would understand that Paul is indeed speaking of both monetary and physical support as well as respect and love that ought to be afforded to those men in the church who, having been ordained and chosen by the church for leadership, do a good job at it. And with all of this in mind, that's kind of the intro. With all of this in mind, consider with me 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love, 
for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. This is the second time in this book that Paul beseeches the church. The first was in chapter 4, verse 1, as he transitioned from his personal teaching to his more doctrinal teaching. And the idea here is a strong exhortation. Paul is appealing to his authority as an apostle and their love for him and asking them to act according to what he's telling them in obedience. And what he asks here is that the believers in the church would truly recognize the office and the authority of the ministers that were laboring among them and to respect that office and that authority. These men weren't going to be the kind of seasoned pastors that Paul and Silas were. But these men were ministers of God appointed by the apostle in the church and thus deserving of the recognition and the respect of their office. Now, we know that Paul is speaking of the elders here because he says that these are men who labor among them and are over them in the Lord, that are above them in the Lord. Not that they are better Christians or greater Christians or stronger Christians, but that in authority, they have been placed over the rest of the church. That is what this means that they have been placed in authority, that would be the thus elders, right? Placed over the rest of the church in authority. Speaking of God ordained authority, and also that they admonish them, speaking of their role as teaching. So these were men who had God ordained authority, and these were men that had a teaching role in the church. They were over the church and they admonished the church. These are elders, teachers and overseers, right? Pastors, overseers, who are elders. That's 1 Peter 5. But it's not just about recognition of their authority. It's not just about cold or blind submission to what they say or what they're trying to do or what they are asking. Notice verse 13. He says, don't just know them, don't just recognize their authority, but esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Paul's language here could hardly be stronger. The phrase very highly, esteem them very highly, is a phrase found three times in the New Testament. It's used one other time in 1 Thessalonians. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says this, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul says that his prayers unto God for this church, that they might be able to get back to this church, were prayers of excessive amount. And he used the same phrase, exceeding abundantly is the idea of this phrase, uh, a, a very intensive phrase, indicating the highest degree of effort put into desiring to see these, the prayers desiring to see this church again. But the second usage, the, the, the last one, we've seen the one in 1 Thessalonians 5, this one here in 1 Thessalonians 3. The final usage is the most startling. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul says this, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to his power that worketh in us. Paul uses this phrase to express the excessive degree of blessing and power that God has to perform actions based upon that, 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 that really go beyond our imagination. 
So Paul used this same phrase to speak of God's unimaginable power. And he says, church, esteem those who labor among you in authority and in doctrine very highly, exceeding abundantly in love for their work's sake. That for the sake of the work that they are doing among you, they deserve your love, your honor, your loyalty, and your respect. As we consider these truths together, we don't really see this much more anymore in the church, do we? There are plenty of pastors out there that simply don't deserve love and honor and respect. But even more that don't find it. And it is this dynamic that I'd like us to consider this evening as we apply these truths to our lives. And though it might sound a little bit self-serving, and I, 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 there's no way around that. I'm preaching God's Word. This is going to sound self-serving because I'm the pastor of this church and I'm preaching about you loving your pastor. It's, just, it's, it's going to be what it's going to be. It's going to sound self-serving. But I'd like to encourage you to follow the teaching of God's Word in this area in the same way I encourage you to follow the teaching of God's Word in any area. It just so happens that this is where we are in 1 Thessalonians. So consider with me this evening, number one, the excessive independence of the contemporary Christian church. There's a culture of independence in this nation that may be unlike any in any country outside of our own. Not only is there a general capability for independent living through technology, but that same technology has caused us to feel generally fulfilled in every way without the need for personal interaction. Between cell phones and the internet and social media and all of the things that are going on right now, television, all of these various technologies, uh, it has brought about a circumstance where people can indeed feel completely content with just themselves for days on end, as far as personal interaction goes. Now this, on top of the Western world and specifically the United States, is propensity toward rebellion and self-governance which is baked into the culture of the United States. And we have an atmosphere in the modern church today where people are very unwilling to submit themselves to church authority. We live in a consumer culture that doesn't have any interest in getting involved or being put out or inconvenienced by a church. If I were to offend you greatly tonight, you could just pack your bags and go to one of the other 17 churches in Buffalo. Or one of the other, how many dozens of churches within 20 square miles of this location. And this idea of consumer Christianity has brought us to a place of independence where we say, I don't need you. (laughs) Where everybody says they're willing to leave a church at a moment's notice. We want to come, we want to sit, we want to listen, we want to learn, and we want to leave. And the question becomes then, what does that make the pastor? What does that make the pastor in our churches today? Well, is he much more in that scenario? Is he much more than just a hired gun? He isn't so much the one that labors among you as much as he is the mouthpiece at the front, right? 
The temptation is to see him only for what he says rather than who he is. The temptation is to judge him critically so that he can only expect to earn your respect as you are impressed by his teaching. You don't know him. You just hear him. But is there any scenario in which he could actually gain your love? Where he could actually earn your love? Is there any scenario where you might actually call yourself loyal to the pastor, to the minister that is among you? Now, please don't feel like I'm, I'm attacking the church this evening. I, I, many of the things that I'm preaching are indicative of the church at large, perhaps not as indicative of our body of believers. I, I, as a pastor, let me just say this as I continue, feel very loved in this church. I do. And I appreciate that greatly. But the temptation in our hearts is to remain detached, to stay detached. But in doing so, the pastor becomes nothing more to you than what he has to offer you. And when he can't offer you what you want, you drop him like a sack of potatoes. But this isn't what Paul pictures here. Paul says that the men who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you, you should invest in them. They invest in you. You should invest in them. You should love them. You should esteem them highly. And we can't do that with the modern American church mindset. Because it takes a loyalty that many churchgoers simply don't have an interest in today. And while in many contexts our tendency toward independence is a good thing, the church is not about your independence. That's not what the church is about. Do a study on the church in the scriptures. You're not going to find a lot of context wherein independence comes up. The church is about a body of believers growing in Christ together. An individual in the church who is a member of a greater whole to reflect Christ and to serve in the name of Christ as a body. So consider, first of all, the excessive independence of the contemporary Christian church and Christian culture. Consider, second, the hypercriticism of contemporary Christian culture. This is the second hindrance that we face concerning what Paul exhorts us to do here, which is to highly esteem those who labor among us. We live in a hyper-critical Christian culture, a Christian culture that cannot stand anything apart from their vein of truth, a Christian culture that is literally looking for ways to be offended, a Christian culture that is not willing to listen, not willing to learn, but rather excited about debating and arguing. And this is a side effect uh, excuse me, this side effect of this kind of a Christian culture probably hits the pastor the hardest. Pastors walk through their ministries hearing all the time about why they are so wrong in what they believe and what they teach. I read a pastor's blog and I read dogmatic statements about why I am wrong in my theology. People come, they love the preaching, they love the church, but they leave because... Something isn't right about who we are or what we are. People aren't looking inherently for God's will regarding the church that they're supposed to be in. They're looking for their will in a church. 
And I say that again, people aren't inherently looking for God's will as to which church they ought to be in. They are looking for their will literally embodied in a church. So the pastor of your church isn't perfect. He says things that are wrong. He maybe gave you a wrong cross-reference from time to time. You don't agree with him on everything he says. His family is different from yours in standards and in expectations and in lifestyle. But what about these questions? Is he truly expressing a love for God and genuine obedience to God's word? Is he teaching sound biblical doctrine? Is he leading the church toward or away from Christ? Does he meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3? If all of that's in place and God has brought you through those doors, then maybe you should think twice before the hypercritical attitude that is a temptation for us today takes over and gives us that laundry list of reasons why we shouldn't be listening to that man, why we shouldn't have any loyalty to that man, why we shouldn't love that man. See, a spirit of hypercriticism is incompatible with the spirit of abounding love that God intends for you to foster between yourself and your minister. How can you esteem a man highly if you're so busy criticizing him all the time? How can you minister, excuse me, how can your minister ever hope to live up to the expectations of a hypercritical church and a hypercritical Christian culture? How can any pastor live up to that? He can't. So we've considered the excessive independence of contemporary Christian culture. We've considered the hypercritical nature of the contemporary Christian culture. Third and finally, Consider the unprecedented access that we have in contemporary Christian culture. We live in the information age. Unprecedented amounts of information come through your mind on a daily basis. Think about it. Between watching the news and reading the internet and listening to podcasts and whatever else you might do, listening on the radio, so much information comes across your eyes. And I'm going to get personal here for a moment. Please, again, do not take this as a rebuke unless it's the Holy Spirit placing a thumb on something in your heart and life. This is not a rebuke from your pastor. I am not rebuking or thinking. No one's, no one's name is in my mind as I'm saying this. Let me just put it that way. You have the capacity to get online or to turn on the television or to turn on the radio and to hear teaching from some of the very best Bible teachers that are walking on this planet. And your pastor is not one of those. Okay? I am who I am. I'm not one of the best Bible teachers walking on this planet. But, you know what else I am? I am your pastor. I am your pastor. Those Bible teachers walking around this planet teaching great stuff are not your pastor. When they are preparing teaching and sermons, they don't have your faces running through his head. You are not on his heart. I'm the minister that's laboring among you. I serve in good conscience. I labor before God 
to be the shepherd of this church, to be the bishop of this church, to be the elder of this church. I love you. And I pour my effort into serving you. And I pour my effort into serving this community. And for all of my responsibilities, do you know what is not my responsibility? It is not my responsibility to compete for your love. It is not my responsibility to compete for your loyalty with men halfway across the country or halfway across the world. That is not a burden I can bear. Now, you're going to listen to them, and that's fine. I do too. I encourage you to listen to good Bible teachers. I encourage you to listen to good Bible teaching. I encourage you to find men of sound doctrine and to make them a part of your teaching circle and network. It's wonderful for you to learn everything you can, whether it's from me or whether it's from other men who have shown themselves to be sincere and faithful teachers of the Word of God. But God never intended that I would be forced to compete with those men for your love and loyalty. God never intended that I would be judged against men who I've never met, much less have never met you, over, how, uh, over the degree to which I am capable to teach you God's Word. God's design is that you would have a genuine flesh and blood minister called to your city, called to your family, one who will pray for you by name, one who will watch over your soul, one who will teach you, one who will answer your questions, one who will meet your needs, one who will encourage you when you are down, one who will rebuke you when you are wrong, one who will sit by your bedside when you're sick, one who will visit your family, one who will visit your friends, one who will be there night or day for you, praying for you, loving you, thinking of you, helping you. Those guys can't do that for you. If they were here, would they do that for you? Yes, they would. If they're sound Bible teachers and proper uh, pastors, then they would be here for you. Then they would be praying for you. But you know what? They can't because they have their own people to minister to. It's too much for you to expect that of them. But you don't need to expect that of them because God has given you someone to do all of that for you. You are my responsibility. You're the ones I pray for. You're the ones I serve. You're the ones I would drop anything to help. You're the ones I would give anything to help. Yes, I'm preaching this message and it's going to go online and a few people across the country are going to listen to it over the course of the next weeks, months, and years, but they are not my ministry. You are my ministry. They are not the ones I think of and pray for. I mean, unless my family is listening or something, but, but they are not the ones. They are not on my mind when I'm writing my sermons. You are on my mind when I'm writing these sermons. I am the minister thus, therefore, consequently, that you are supposed to esteem very highly in love for my labor's sake. Now, this is a process that is in part one of time Nobody grows, nobody becomes lo uh, loyal or um, deeply loyal to or, or uh, grows a love for a person overnight. It takes time to get to know a man, to learn to trust a man, to understand whether or not his doctrine is pure, to understand whether or not he loves God, to understand whether or not he's going to lead you in the direction you ought to go. 
But a part of the process is not just time. A part of the process is also faith. That if you know that this is the church that God has for you, then you ought to be actively seeking to align your heart with God's command and Paul's exhortations in this matter. And that would be that you would esteem those that labor among you very highly for, for their love's sake and for their work's sake. Now, such exhortations are a bit awkward for me and it's definitely unnatural for me. I feel like what I am doing up here at the very least can be construed as me saying, the Bible says you should love me, so love me. Right? I, I don't even like, I don't, I don't like, I don't like that. It, it, you know, why can't you just love me? Right? But that's not what I'm trying to do. It's not. Every week we come together and we open the Bible. To the best of my ability, I tell you what the Bible is saying and what it means, and then I seek to take what the Bible is saying and what it means and bridge the gap between understanding and application so that you can know how to take that which the Bible says and bridge it into your life. At the end of the day, Paul's message today was about you purposefully choosing to be loving and loyal to the minister that he has ordained for you in your church. And it just so happens that that is me. So please take the message in the spirit with which it is intended. And in whatever way the Holy Spirit of God is teaching you or is convicting your heart, I urge you to respond to him this evening. Let's pray.